0: Welcome back. I'm Mark Steiner, and you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Every Friday, we hear a commentary from Koli Tenghela on our world. He's president of Tengella Edutainment, where he uses theater, film, and new media for positive social change. He's an instructor and creator of the Positive Social Change Theater Performing Arts Program at Augusta Fell Savage Institute of Visual Arts High School. He was also an Open Society Fellow in 2010. And here's Tengela's take.
1: African black folks' lives and bodies are not piñatas and shooting targets for this country's new and open racist buttholes. Forget about the old R&B song by the group Houdini. The freaks come out at night. There is a new remix of that joint called Racists Come Out All The Time. The racists come out all the time. Since the election of Donald Trump as president, it has been an enormous increase in racially motivated incidents and hate crimes. The Southern Poverty Law Center says that there have been over 200 incidents of hate-based harassment and violence since Donald Trump was elected. Here are a few of them. Redding, California, a student at a high school passed out to all non-white students deportation letters. Graffiti on a wall in Durham, North Carolina said, black lives don't matter and neither does your vote. Young people at a high school in Pennsylvania yelled, Zig Heil and did Nazi salutes, and called African black children cotton pickers. All this just days after Trump became president-elect. Coincidence? I don't think so. Hey, check this racist America. We African black, brown Latino, red indigenous, and all other people of color have always known That this country that we love is sick. America is truly afflicted with what many psychologists and psychiatrists feel is a mental illness called systematic racism. Yes, I just called racism a mental illness. Because for anyone to believe that one person is better or worse because of the color of their skin, that person has got to be crazy. So, America, let's find a gigantic couch, lay down, work out our racial issues together. I'm, I'm Coley Tengela, and fresh. that's my take. I'm so reckless
2: when I my dress. I'm
3: so Thank you
0: so much, Coley Tengela, for that commentary. Now, for the next two hours, we're going to bring you a special edition from our archives. On November 20th, 2007, I began a series of conversations that toured the state of Maryland. It was called Martin and Malcolm, One Vision, Two Voices. I played an interviewer interviewing both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in different secret places. Bill Grimet played Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Charles Everett Pace played Malcolm X. We had the conversations before a live audience who asked questions as we all stayed in character to answer those questions. It was sponsored by the National Endowment for Humanities and the Maryland Humanities Council. So please enjoy these conversations. (laughs)
4: I think it's most importantly uh, appropriate to say good evening. My name is Omari Hughes. I'm a member of the Maryland Humanities Council, a council that celebrates people. You know, our mission is to use the humanities to conduct community conversations about difficult and important issues across the state of Maryland, and we believe that there's no issue more difficult or more important than that of race relations. Tonight's conversation is an extraordinary opportunity for all of us in the audience to reflect on the legacy of the Civil Rights Movement and the state of race relations in our communities, in your communities, Maryland. Leading the discussion tonight with our distinguished guest is Mark Steiner. Mark is well known throughout Baltimore as a passionate community spokesman and is a strong proponent of what the Maryland Humanities Council is striving to achieve with its community conversations. In addition to serving as a radio commentator for 12 years, Mark has worked as an educator and a social activist. And I'd ask you at this time to please join me in welcoming Mark Steiner to the stage.
0: Good evening and welcome. It's a pleasure to see all of you out here this evening. Tonight, with the Maryland Humanities Council, we're going to present a dialogue with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And let me tell you how it's going to work. I uh, will introduce both men. They will talk from here for a few minutes, and then we will sit there together and have a dialogue with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and then at some point, when the spirit moves us, we will invite you to join that conversation uh, with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King at either mic over there. And then, when the spirit moves us again, the two men who are here as Malcolm X and Martin Luther King will come out of character and be the actors and sit and continue the dialogue about the legacy of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X from their perspective and what it means in today's world and who they are and who they represent. And now I'm gonna ask you for a moment to let your imaginations go a bit. That you are back in January of 1965 and Malcolm X has just returned from Africa Martin Luther King is in Atlanta. The Civil Rights Movement is going through many changes. The Integrated Civil Rights Movement is being questioned by many. There's been a lot of violence in the South. The back of segregation has been broken. Malcolm X is now wrestling with a new way of thinking on his own. Apart from the black Muslim world, the Nation of Islam, It's a time when uh, he was embracing a different thought, and both men were on this kind of parallel trajectory but going very different places, maybe in the same place. We'll talk about that. And we'll talk with them both about that time in their lives. So we're going back to January of 1965. I don't think that either Malcolm X nor Martin Luther King uh, need any real introduction, but they came from very different worlds. Malcolm X came from the North, from the urban ghetto, from the streets. Martin Luther King came from the South, from a middle-class home, from the urban South. Very different experiences that brought them to this place. So right now we are in January of 1965, and we're gonna meet both men. And first, I would like to introduce to you Malcolm X.
5: alaikum. And during the few moments that we have left, we just like to have an off-the-cuff chat between you and me. Us. We like to talk right down to earth in a language that Everyone here can easily understand. We all agree, all of the speakers of this series have agreed that America has a very serious problem. Not only does America have a very serious problem, but our people, black people, have a very serious problem. America's problem is us. We're her problem. And the only reason that she has a problem is that she doesn't want us here. And every time you look at yourself, be you black, brown, red or yellow, a so-called Negro, you represent a person who poses such a serious problem for America simply because you're not wanted. Once we began to face this as a fact, we can begin to chart the course that will make us appear intelligent instead of unintelligent. Now what you and I must learn to do is to forget our differences. When we come together, we don't come together as Baptists or Methodists. You don't catch hell because you are Baptist. You don't catch hell because you're a Methodist. You don't catch hell because you're a Baptist or a Methodist. You don't catch hell because you're a Mason, a Democrat, Republican, or an elk, and you sure don't catch hell because you're an American, because if you were an American, you wouldn't catch no hell. You catch hell because you're a black man. You catch hell. All of us catch hell for the same reason. So we all black people so-called Negroes, second-class citizens, ex-slaves. You're nothing but an ex-slave. You don't like to be told that, but what else are you? You're an ex-slave. You didn't come here on the Mayflower. You were brought here and chains like a horse, or a cow, or a chicken. And you were brought here by the people who came over on the Mayflower. You were brought here by the pilgrims, or so-called founding fathers. They were the ones who brought you here and shot you full of Novocaine. Like when you go to the dentist and he's going to take your tooth, what you do. You start fighting when he starts pulling. So to keep you from fighting back, they squirt some stuff in your jaw called Novocaine to make you think they aren't doing anything to you. Because you got all of this Novocaine shut up in you, you sit there and you suffer peacefully. Blood running all down your jaw, but you don't know what's happening, see, because somebody has taught you to suffer peacefully. Don't stop suffering, just suffer peacefully. As Reverend Cleve pointed out, let your blood flow in the streets. This is a shame. And he's a Christian preacher. If it's a shame to him, you know what it is to me. there's nothing in our religious book, the Koran, as you call it, Koran, that teaches us to suffer peacefully. Our religion teaches us to be peaceful, obey the law, respect every man. But if someone puts his hands on you, send him to the cemetery. And that's a good religion. In fact, that's that old time religion. That's the one that Ma and Paul used to talk about. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a head for a head and nobody. Nobody resents that type of religion being taught except a wolf who intends to make you his next meal. And these old religious Uncle Toms running around here talking about give up your life for freedom. Now, brothers and sisters, you preserve your life because it's the best thing you've got. And if you must give it up, I say if you, must give it up, let it be even Stephen.
0: And now let me introduce to you the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
6: Good evening. evening. It is a, a wonderful pleasure for me to be here this evening to hold a dialogue with my brother Malcolm. In this time, it is a crucial time to have this debate because it is a time for our people to discern whether we're moving forward or moving back. And so I'm pleased to engage in this dialogue about violence, nonviolence. And let me be the first to say that today there is no longer a choice between violence and nonviolence. It is either nonviolence or nonexistence. I feel that we've got to look at this total thing anew. Recognize that we must live together, that the whole world is now one. Not only geographically, but we must come together and become one in brotherly love. Whether we live in America, or Europe, or Asia, or Africa, we're tied together in a single garment of destiny, and whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation, but we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. And while abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. And I know this is hard, but this is the only way to create the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of a beloved community, so that when the battle is over, a new relationship comes into being between the oppressed and the oppressor. The way of acquiescence leads to moral and spiritual suicide. The way of violence leads to bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. But the way of nonviolence leads to redemption and the creation of the loved- beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence is emptiness and bitterness. In other words, our ultimate goal is integration, which is a genuine intergroup and interpersonal living. And only through nonviolence can this goal be attained. The aftermath of nonviolence. Is reconciliation, and when we can march arm in arm in a nonviolent struggle against the forces of evil, and when we can match our strength and march together as brother and sister against the debilitating, crippling scourges of racism, poverty, and war, and when we do this. We will let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Then we can speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics can sing together in that old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last.
0: Well. This is a very auspicious occasion.
6: Well, we're just glad to be here.
0: Glad to have you here. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I don't think we'd ever see this meeting take place, but it's good to see this meeting take place. Uh, I'd, I'd like to ask both of you just a personal question, and then kind of move on into some of the things that you have spoken about and both written about over the years and experienced over the years. And is where you come from, who you are, why you think you are what you are today in this beginning of the year 1965. As you both are spokesmen for this nation, for the African, for the black community, and the Negro community here in America. So,
5: but from very different places. <laughs> Malcolm? Uh, my first recollection as a being snatched awake in the middle of the night because our house was on fire. My mother was a West Indian from Grenada and my father, a militant Baptist minister and a follower of Marcus Garvey preached race, pride and separation from the white man. The Lansing arm of the Ku Klux Klan wanted him to stop preaching God's message, but my father was not a frightened Negro, and he kept on, and next day he was found with his head bashed in, lying across the streetcar tracks. A trolley had almost cut him in half. After my father's death, my mother tried to hold the family together. She couldn't find work because the Christian people of Lansing wouldn't hire a widow of a crazy, but she could stretch bread, Brother Mark, a dozen ways, fried bread and stewed bread and <laughs> when she found raisins, bread pudding. When I was no bread, she fed us dandelions, fried grass. We were so hungry, we were dizzy. We stole to stay alive. It was too much for her, so they put her away at a mental institution and parceled out us kids to reform schools and charities and homes. That was, that was my beginning. Reverend King.
6: Well, with all that cooking, it sounds like we might have grown up in the same household. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my grandmother was the was the cook, but I grew up in Atlanta during the time of segregation, and but my community and my home life were filled with love, and I didn't, although I was aware, made aware of of, of how segregation existed, because when I was about uh, oh, five or six years old, I had a little white friend who lived down the street and we would play together. And one day as we got older, he came up to me and he said uh, he couldn't play with me anymore. And I asked him why, and he said, because his father had told him that he couldn't play with me because I was a n- Well, I wasn't phased by it, At then I didn't know what he meant. But so I asked my, my father and my mother and they told me what it meant. It was my first introduction to this dual system that we live in, in America. And I went on and through school and began to study from the beginning, the beginning of the country and how this whole separation began. And began to wonder how could we bring these people together? How could we reconcile these forces that were separated deliberately. When I was in high school, 15 years old, I wrote a paper on the Negro and the Constitution and began to question these issues. And it was not until I was in seminary that I heard Dr. Mordecai Johnson speaking and he talked about Mohandas K. Gandhi. And it got my attention and I went out and got everything that I could read on Gandhi. And that's when I began to see that there was indeed a method by which we could begin to bring these forces together. And that's how I uh, began the philosophy that has brought me here this evening.
0: You're listening to a very special edition from our archives to honor Malcolm X and Martin Luther King on this Malcolm X's 92nd birthday. We'll take a short break, but stay with us, more to come. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Now we continue our special archive presentation of The Mark Steiner Show, where we talk with Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, played by Bill Grimet and Charles Everett Pace and me. And here we are. I mean, we are in a place where... Segregation has just officially ended in many ways in America. You have just come back, Malcolm, from, from Africa. Uh, you met revolutionaries from all throughout Africa, Latin America, Che Guevara, and Tanzania, Mozambique, Angola, Nasser, and you both, in many ways, are identified as revolutionaries in this United States of America. Threatening figures, but very different reasons why you both are threatening figures. I don't know why I'm even sitting in the middle of you.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I, I so I, I wonder then, what are your visions for where we're going to go? What's going to happen now, 1965? 1966, 67. You know, you talk about well living in a peaceful way, and you've, and you've talked about in your most recent speech, just the opposite of that we have to stand up and be prepared to fight. So where are we going? Well, I don't think
5: that that's a difficult thing. Uh, freedom, justice, equality, and respect as human beings. In the racial climate of this country, it's anybody's guess which of these extremes in approach might meet a fatal, catastrophic end. First, nonviolent, Dr. King, a so-called violent me. But what we want is freedom, justice, equality, and respect as human beings. Absolutely right. That's we, Brother Malcolm, and I agree. Uh,
6: the question is not whether we want the same thing, we know we do. The question is whether the strategy and the tactics that we use to get there is more or less likely to get us there. Now, I don't know and I don't presume to articulate for Brother Malcolm what his strategies and tactics are. I only know what I, what I hear him say, but I can tell you that It was in 1955 when I uh, first got down to, to Montgomery. And Montgomery is the old Confederate headquarters. There in Montgomery, Alabama, 1955, segregation was dug in about as deep as you can dig it. And there, a group of people had come together and formed an organization called the Montgomery Improvement Association. They didn't form an organization called the Montgomery Destruction Association. They didn't form an organization called the Montgomery Get Even Association. They called it the Montgomery Improvement Association. The tactics that they used were designed to improve Montgomery without destroying anybody in the process. When I walked there in Montgomery, I was looking for a church. Just come out of school and had been ordained earlier. My father had his way in and finally made me a preacher, which I fought tooth and nail for a while. And I was a young minister looking to take over my first church at Dexter Avenue. And they were having a meeting that night and they were looking for a president. And when I walked in the door, they all looked around and said, we need a president. There he is. (laughs) And I became engaged in the movement, and it was there that I saw people designing tactics to bring down the system of Jim Crow without bringing down the people in the process. And so I think that where we're going is trying to Get rid of the problem, or as the the old saying goes, get rid of the dirty bathwater, but keep the baby. But you both,
0: just a little while ago, a year and some months, had de- very different reactions when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. We had very different reactions. You got in trouble for your reactions. I remember, Malcolm. And I, I wonder what it says about where you think we have to go and how we have to get there. I mean, it, it, you're being very agreeable at this moment with one another, and perhaps you really are. But the question of where the Negro people in America are going to go and will this integration work, your last couple of speeches doesn't make me think you think it will work, Malcolm. That I think you had a great line in your speech last year when you said, um, uh, "It doesn't make any difference if we black people move out of uh, our neighborhoods. As soon as we do, they're going to move out anyway. As soon as we get there." And so, where is this taking us? I mean, I, you know, you you so, and I appreciate the fact that you two get along. I'm not trying to start a fight between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. It would be unseemly, but, I, but, I would, but you seem to have very different
5: ideas about what this means at this moment and where it's going. Well, I don't believe in any type of integration. I don't believe in it because, you know, black folk are not going to get it in this country anyway, and I disagree with your characterization of revolution. There's no revolution going on here. They're not going to get it because they are afraid to die, and you've got to be willing to die if you try and force yourself on a white man because he would get just as violent as those crackers in Mississippi right here in Baltimore. But we are against a segregated school system because it's criminal. But it doesn't mean that a school system is segregated because it's all black. Look, the white man controls his own political system, his own economic system, his own social system, but he also controls yours. And whenever you're under somebody else's control, you segregate it because they will always give you the worst or the lowest there is to offer. But it doesn't mean that you segregate it because you have your own. You've got to control your own. And just like the white man has control over his, you've got to have control over yours. Now, what are we doing about that? Well, we have two organizations. When I was in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, I was sat at a table of uh, Prime Ministers and Presidents in Africa, Organizations of African Unity. So when we came back to this country, we formed two organizations, one we had previously formed, Muslim Mosque Incorporated, for the spiritual leadership of our people. Of course, now I don't expect Negroes to go out all of a sudden become Muslims, I don't expect that, but for those who want a religion that does not segregate people according to color, that organization exists, but more in terms of Uh, 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 the organization that you were talking about, Dr. King, the Montgomery uh, Improvement Association. We formed another organization called the Organization of Afro-American Unity and this is to be an umbrella organizations so that all the so-called civil rights groups can get together and sit down and talk, shop with one another. So the first thing that we have to do is organize among ourselves, stop fighting, griping among ourselves, and the organizations of Afro-American unity can be such an umbrella organizations. But no, I I would not call anything that's happening in this country revolutionary. So you got to be willing to die to be a revolutionary.
6: Well, <clears throat> I think what we have here is a revolution. It is a revolution more potent than any revolution known since the beginning of time. You can't tell me that groups of people who walk out without any armor or any arms and walk right in front of a massive army with dogs and tanks and guns are afraid to die. That is the ultimate courage. These people have chosen to fight with the only weapon that they have at their disposal, and that weapon is truth. And they, some of us will die, and some of us are hospitalized, and some of us will go to jail. But the one thing we do not do is continue to antagonize an armed, irrational force. It is already clear that the force on the other side is irrational. The imposition of segregation, the imposition of Jim Crow, the imposition of slavery in the black codes indicate that those on the other side are irrational. What is not clear is that who's on the other side are white people and who's on this side are black people. That is not true. Who's on the other side are people who are irrational and the nonviolent movement brings the rational people to our side and we create a massive army. Now you said that these, you've got to be uh, unafraid to die. And I hope you know that it was legal in Montgomery, in Birmingham, And in Selma, even in the early days, it was legal to lynch people for violating the law. It was legal for the police force to shoot people for just the simplest indiscretion. And those people came out, black people and white people, children as well as adults, and stood there and took all of this and kept saying, we shall overcome. And so, there is a revolution. It is a different kind of revolution, but it is a continuation of the revolution that began many years ago. And it's the only kind of revolution, I I submit, that will ever bring us together, because here's what I know for sure, that if we continue, or if we shoot at the ones who are shooting at us, is going to make enemies of us all and there is absolutely no way that we can ever reconcile. And so this revolution has a point and has an aim of reconciliation. Ultimately, the brothers and sisters on both sides come and live together as one. And that's what we mean by integration.
5: Interpersonal, intergroup relationships. Well, when you said long ago, I I think about long ago. I think about people like George Washington and and Tom Paine. Revolution for me is when you replace one system for another system. So when they go out and they die and they face those bulldogs, what are they facing them for? For an integrated lunch counter, for an integrated bathroom. I'm going to get my head beat up so I can sit next to white folks on the toilet. That's no revolution to me.
0: Well, let's let's explore this a minute. Go ahead.
5: Yeah. Well,
6: uh, uh, yeah. Let me. Uh... Let me not. <laughs> Brother Malcolm has away with the words,
5: and and yes, I suspect that. No revolution for me as a as a black nationalist. It means that black people will control the economics of their neighborhood it would control the sociology of that neighborhood. White people control the economics of their neighborhood, so, but when a revolution that keeps the same base of power seated with the same group of people, what have you changed? Well, but you don't, but but you see, Brother Malcolm,
6: we, we, we don't disagree on the goal of having black people control their own resources. Uh, but you seem to think that we can do that by extracting ourselves from this nation or becoming an armed group and fighting and then staying here as friends. What George Washington was fighting against was another country. What most revolutions that you talk about do is that when they're trying to break away and become their own country, then violence may be uh, effective. But when you have got to stay here, we ain't going anywhere. You've got to stay here, you've got to get along with people. You've got to get along with people and you've got to make your system work. So yes, we need a revolution of values. And that's the revolution we need, a revolution of values. But once we do that,
5: we need everybody cooperating to make all of us fit into the American dream. I don't think I've said anything about violence, Dr. King, uh, when I said that I said with the Organization of African Unity. I didn't see any violence there, but they have certain strategies, certain tactics. One is that we need to change the level of the discourse. We need to change what we're after, civil rights versus human rights. I think as long as you're talking about civil rights, you're talking about something that happens within the domestic concerns of this country. So therefore, our brothers from Latin America, our brothers from Asia, our brothers from Europe, our brothers from the Middle East, our brothers from any other place in the world cannot speak out because they don't want to be confused or they don't want to be uh, uh, accused of interfering with the domestic affairs of the United States. That's civil rights, but we can raise it to the level of human rights. And when we raise it to the level of human rights, see, the United Nations has what's known as a universal declaration of human rights. And that's the rights that all civilized people understand. So when I say that tactics and strategy, no, it could be perfectly nonviolent, political. We can take our case to the United Nations and we can accuse this country and justify what we said for denigrating the human rights of black folk in this country.
1: <clears throat> well,
6: that sounds wonderful and your point about Uh, all the people coming together is, in fact, the goal of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the civil rights movement. But the civil rights movement is about removing those artificial barriers to becoming human. Segregation is one word that captures some very nefarious imposed uh, laws that started out as slave codes and uh, uh, moved down as, as as black codes and they were still on the books that make people feel inferior. In order for you to begin the track of becoming a human being, you've gotta first remove those instruments that are keeping you oppressed. Segregation, the, the separate, the, the inability to go to school and having hand-me-down books and so that you can't learn. you got to fix that so that you can get an equal education so that you can argue on the same plane. You know, the, the, the fact that you can't go down and shop where you want, you can't own a business, you can't work where you want, those are instruments developed in civil society by civil laws that we have to strike down off the books. And once we do that, you're absolutely right, the next move is to move towards universal human rights.
0: So let me ask you both this question, then. What do you think then will happen? I mean, you both in many ways in speeches recently have have taken on the capitalist system in this country, uh, accused it of and this nation of the injustices that uh, oppress Negro, Afro-American people, how either one of you want to put it. and. So the question is, does that get overthrown? Does it get bored from within and changed from within? Do you become part of it? I mean, where does this take us? Where do, where do either one of you take us in your vision of where this comes to next? Freedom,
5: which means justice, equality, and respect as human beings. I don't see what's so complicated about that. But, how, but with all due respect, how do, how do, you, how do you define that? What does the definition of
0: that mean in the world that we're in here, that we're in now? With secular institutions and, and, and everything else we have in America, what does that world mean now? What does it mean? Life,
5: liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs>
6: well, you see, and it's good to say, all of those are wonderful visions and the, the same ones that we are pursuing. But you see the people living in the ghettos in Chicago, or the slums in Selma, the people who can't vote are not asking for words. They wanna know what are you going to do to give me this power you're talking about? Dr. King, what do I do? to learn when they won't let me go to school. It is one thing to say, give me justice, but how are you gonna change the laws on the books? The laws are unjust, but they are laws. Nonetheless, how do you get those off the books? You can't just tell them that it's the right thing to do, and therefore, you gotta be just. You've got to challenge the laws on the books and make the people see for themselves that their own morality is at stake. That when I come and say, as I did down in Montgomery, I was down there and they put me in jail and I was going to pay the fine. And uh, uh, Baird Rustin came down and he said, no, no. Don't pay the fine. And we said, but we need to get out of here. He said, no, no, no. You don't need to get out of here. Stay in jail. Make them fill up the jails. Just stay there until they come to their senses. And you know what happened? It got so bad that the commissioner, Stiles, came down and paid my fine to get me out of his jail which he had put me in. (laughs) This is a revolution of values when you confront people with their own morality. The thing that they teach their children every day, that this is right and this is wrong, and you put it to the test, they have a choice to make. They've gotta make a decision. And at that moment, they have a revolution of
5: values. I don't... I don't know how much, but a large portion of the oil in this country comes from Nigeria. A large portion of the oil in this country comes from Saudi Arabia. So their value system is about the pocketbook. And so, therefore, when our brothers in Saudi Arabia, and our brothers who send oil from Nigeria, and our brothers in Central America who buy the wheat that comes from Kansas and Nebraska in this country starts to speak out on us. That's another way that they will listen to you. That also is a matter of their values. So I don't have any disagreements about any system that work, any way of working, and I have no problem with what you're saying. I'm just simply saying that whatever tactics we use that we will gain in efficiency if we open up that struggle so people around the world can be a part of our struggle. Let, let, me, um, <clears throat> let me ask the audience now
0: if, if you would like to uh, ask some questions of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King for the next 15, and 20 minutes before we switch gears a bit. I'd love to have you come. The microphones on our right. Well, your left and your right. And, uh, and, and we'll, so let's see, we have people, you're there first sir, so why don't you begin the question get the mic up and.
6: Well, I think mean, he's just fixing the microphone. Let me uh, uh, hasten to add that I agree with Brother Malcolm. I think this is an international effort that we have to bring all people into this struggle for justice and for humanity. Uh, and, and, and we're doing that on every level. Uh, both uh, in the NAACP and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and many of the uh, organizations. We've got young people involved. We've got uh, the the, uh, uh, poverty campaigns, and we are really trying to make certain that we address on all levels all people's concerns. One of the things we noticed uh, during the struggle is that when you talk about civil rights, and it's been... uh, labeled now as a black movement, many, many white people don't see themselves in that struggle even though they have the same issues. They are being left out and oppressed and ignored. And if we were to just continue to say this is a civil rights movement, we would have done, made the same mistake that they were making at the beginning of the Civil War And Frederick Douglass said to Abraham Lincoln, you are forgetting the biggest army that you own. He said, you got four million slaves sitting down in the slave countries. You set them free and you've got an army on your side instantly already behind enemy lines. If we didn't recognize the plight of white people in this country who were poor and disfranchised and disillusioned and uneducated, and we would have left an army behind enemy lines that was bigger than the one that the slaves were talking about. And so, I, I think you're absolutely right that our, our focus and our vision has always to be bigger than just, just the immediate struggle that we're going through right now.
7: Sir, why don't you start, I said you could start. There. All right, well fine, start over there. My question is for Brother Minister Malcolm. Assalamu salamu Wa Alaykum well, like assalam brother. Uh, I wanted to know a little bit about your experience. Um, before you, I think you came, I think it was London, you came to London and you found doors closed to you in London, I believe it was. Could have been France, I believe it was London. And uh, we have a little bit of footage with some of your remarks standing outside of some building where you were trying to let us know that um, Certainly, things are changing. Our doors are being closed. But this is also about the same time as your theory, with it being larger about the expansion of having having to do with America's acceptance of what of, of its uh, or if its embarrassment around the world with black people and how it had been treating its citizens. And so, your argument was to expose this, which would also sh- uh, embarrass. America. That's my point I want you to touch on but I also wanted to comment that it it befuddles me. It puzzles me that there is a group in Israel of younger Jews who are always hoping to be free. They believe they can get along with Palestinians but there's a power standing above them. It's the same here in this nation. Today's young white people, a lot of them are ready to come on board for change, but there is a power structure above them. It's as if race is some sort of a game we use in order to keep the politics as it is and to keep things as normal as they are. But I like what James Baldwin, brother Baldwin, said, and that is that government appears to be doing something when it's actually doing nothing.
5: Mm. Mm. David, to respond. Oh, I've always had a tremendous response from young white students, particularly on college campuses. I find perhaps next to a, a black audience in some parts of our urban <coughs> Americans, I enjoy speaking on college campuses more than other place because their minds are open. But back to your, your question about doors closed to me in England. No, I, I, I've sp- spoken at Oxford, I've spoken at the uh, uh, union there. You you may be talking about something that happened to me in France at Orly Airport when the plane landing, I was moving from England to New York and we had a stairway there and this was in reference to some of the things that I have been saying about the threats on my life and as you know about what happened to me with the former organization that I w- once uh, belonged to and that there are now threats on my life and I had been said that those threats no doubt came from Chicago. And that was my belief, except when the plane landed, a gentleman came up, and this was in France, and stopped in front of my chair and said, are you Mr. Malcolm X? I said, yes sir, I am. He said to me, you are not welcome on French soil. Now at that point. I realized that there was a wider, as you said, system of force at work here, because Mr. Mohammed has a lot of power, but he doesn't have that much power. <laughs> so there indeed is a force wider happening here, certainly in terms of my personal life, but in terms of the country uh, as a whole, and I think people are waking up to that, and certainly in the white community, the young white students, are waking up to that fact. And I see it all over this country, whether it's Berkeley, whether it's at UCLA, whether it's at the University of Michigan, whether it's at Columbia, whether it's at NYU.
6: And this is is precisely why we talk about uh, this whole notion of love, the purpose of love being redemptive. (laughs) That the notion of loving just to love uh, is not Christian. Love has to be redeeming of some powerful value inside of us. And when you call people to task on that issue, they do the right thing. We, we, we often, it's easy to forget when you are in the struggle and you are being beat upon and, and denied every right that even a dog could get. It's hard to remember that white people have always been in the struggle with us from the beginning. That at the beginning of the revolution, white people were in the struggle. You have to remember that it was a slaveholder who wrote those beautiful words that Brother Malcolm just quoted. We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal. Endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was those words that we took and, in a nonviolent fashion, handed back on a platter and said, Come feast on the words that your founders wrote. Recognize that you are a part of this struggle. We didn't say this. You said it. Now come on your side. And that's what we mean when we talk about reconciliation. People reconciling themselves with the truth. Reconciling themselves with love. And it's when we do that, that we all live to the best of our humanity. And we can live in an integrated fashion without being necessarily the same. That's what we're at.
0: Welcome back, folks. You're listening to the Mark Steiner Show right here on your source for cool jazz and more. W E A A, eighty-eight point nine FM, the voice of the community. And today we're airing a special edition from our archives to honor the ninety-second birthday of Malcolm X. We're bringing you an archived edition from a Maryland Humanities tour, where I played an interviewer interviewing Malcolm X, played by Charles Everett Pace, and Dr. Martin Luther King, and Martin Luther King Jr., played by Bill Grimet. Enjoy the rest of this conversation. Ma'am.
1: Yes,
3: it's 1965. I'm an eight-year-old girl growing up on a farm in rural Minnesota. I haven't heard of you, Malcolm, and I've barely heard of you, Mr. King. How are you going to get the middle of the country on board with your strategies?
5: Well, that's a good question. some years ago, a man by the name of Mike Wallace did a, did a profile of an organization, and he called it The Hate That Hate Produce. So that's one, one uh, way we've reached people. I'm not sure if I would agree with everything he said. And there's another man named Mr. Alex Haley. Uh, he's been writing for uh, Reader's Digest. He also written for another magazine, Playboy. I know you don't, you don't read that one. But I've been in conversation over with him for a little over a year now, and I'm writing uh, my autobiographical work that I've seen the galleys of that, and hopefully that will be out as one way uh, of getting my word out. Uh, we founded a newspaper some years ago called Muhammad Speaks. I'm no longer allowed to even be quoted in that newspaper anymore. <laughs> And uh, there's a Pathfinder Press has uh, contacted me to put together all of my speeches. And so uh, that's uh, another way that uh, the word would be uh, gotten out. But ultimately, of course, uh, the mass media. And I've come to really like uh, some of the people on the radio and television panel programs I've been on, people like Barry Farber and... Mary, Barry Gray, and Mike Wallace, and people like them. Because even if they have been in almost constant disagreement with me over the race issue, they've always managed to keep their minds open about certain truths that are happening in the world today. And they also let me know they respected my mind in ways I know they never realized it. The way I know it is that oftentimes we would sit around like now for an hour or so, and they would often invite my opinion over various issues. You see, the reason you don't hear a lot about me in Minnesota is that most white men, even if they do credit a black man with some intelligence, still feels the only issue that he's qualified to speak on is the race issue. You just notice how often you will ever hear a white man asking a black man, what do you think about the problems of world health? of a race to put a man on the moon. So what we need to do is open up the mass media and have people who look like me and look like Dr. King and perhaps we'll get more of the message, if I can use that term, out to little girls in uh, Minnesota. Dr. King?
6: I think we should not underestimate the purpose of this uh, uh, wall of silence that has been erected around the country in so many places, specifically to keep people from hearing of what's going on in the cities. Uh, It is not without its purpose. And some lots of people who know things and who are in a position to write and publish them will not do so because of their own beliefs. And so don't ever think that it's just a matter of bringing the story to the editor and say, here's a good story and have it published. This segregation was deeply entrenched down into the soul of the country on every front and it was deliberate and it was evil. And so to the extent that an eight year old in the Midwest does not know the story is more than it has been kept from her because people in the West know the story and people in the East know the story and it had to go from East through the Midwest (laughs) to the West.
8: Sir? Thank you. Uh, Both of you men are great, and uh, I find it very uh, interesting that, uh, and my comrades and I, we made an observation earlier, uh, that to have the the cream in the middle to hold the two chocolate pieces (laughs) together was very (laughs) interesting.
6: (laughs) 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 I've been called that number of times. (laughs)
8: which seems to be uh, the way things happen in our society. Uh, um, Another observation, uh, Dr. King, there seems to be an unsavory element in your circles. Uh, There has been talk that uh, there is a gentleman who uh, uh, espoused uh, the philosophy of nonviolence and actually uh, is your mentor in that. Uh, respect, uh, um, has uh, participated in activities that are not pleasing uh, to to the community at large. Uh, you mentioned his name this evening by the name of A.N. Rustin. My question is, uh, if you had to choose between uh, the recognition of his um, uh, importance in your uh, in your uh, um, um, uplift in the community as opposed to uh, denying him, which would you do? And to uh, Malcolm X, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, how would you uh, res- respond in that same regard? So you understand what we're talking <clears throat> about here? Uh, yes. I, I think, I, I I think he's
6: mentioning that. Uh, uh, Brother Baird Rustin was, uh, in fact, a homosexual. Right. And a very important part of the movement. And his question is, do I accept him or deny him? It makes me think of Judas. It also makes me think of Peter. And you're asking me, "What do I deny a person who came in and helped us organize a struggle and gave us some of the most important information that actually saved people's lives. No, I don't deny Baird Rustin. During this time it is politic to keep certain things to yourself. It might be a good idea to keep that as a value. Keep certain things to yourself. Mind your own business. I don't know that what Mr. Baird Rustin did at his own time was any of our business, but I can tell you what he did for us. It was Baird Rustin who came in and told us what they had done in 1941 when uh, They were going to do the march on Washington. And he explained to us how we had to do these various actions. You see, nonviolence is not passive. Nonviolence is militant. It is a militant, direct action in your face, all the time, interminably. And without Baird Rustin, some of those tactics would have failed. And so, uh, do I deny Baird Rustin? Uh, no, I sometimes mind my own business about <laughs> his person.
5: Malcolm X. Well, anybody who has lived in the black community know that people of that persuasion have always been a part of our communities, been, always been a part of the church. My my father was a, was a Baptist minister, and ministers of music who minded their own business were always a, a respected part of the church. Mm-hmm. When I left the Midwest and went to New York, and prior to that I was in Roxbury and I, I lived with the people who were considered the uh, deviants of the society. But I learned to understand them and appreciate them as human beings. I was one of them. And ultimately is seeing people as, as human beings. And that's something I, I take from the streets. There was so much that I learned in the streets that was counterproductive. There was so much that I got in the street that was negative, but that aspect of seeing another person as a human being was something that I would have only gotten by living in the dredges of the society, and I keep that as a part of my consciousness.
6: Amen.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Would you each tell us about your personal faith and how your belief in God and in Allah inspire your visions of the future?
5: Well, my path probably has been a little bit uh, more crooked than than Dr. King. Uh, (laughs) As I said, I I grew up, my my father was both a Gaviite and he was also uh, a Baptist minister. Now, he used to take me to both the meetings when he would be preaching and when he would be working as a Gaviite. So I grew up in the church. Then after my father was killed, I I moved away from the church. In fact, I moved so far away from the church that when I was in prison, I was known as Satan. (laughs) I didn't want anybody to tell me anything about the church or God or Christianity or love and that sense or anything that had nothing to do with that. (laughs) Then my brother Reginald came to visit me and he said, Malcolm, he said, I can introduce you, or what would you do if I could introduce you to a man who could get you out of jail? Of course, now, I thought Reginald, understanding me, and I was understanding him, I had, <laughs> thought he had some type of game he was gonna run down to me. And he said he's a man named Elijah Muhammad, and if you were right to him, he would get you out of jail. Of course, the prison that he was talking about was this prison and not this prison, and I, I wrote to him. And I was a member of his organization for 12 years, and I believed in him more than he believed in himself.
6: Mm.
5: And then I came to see there were some things, and I learned this from his own son, my dear Wallace Muhammad, that the man who I thought was the, uh, 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 the messenger of God himself was living a double life. And even at then, as I was saying, I, I began to look around for scripture to try to justify it. And I went to Boston, I went to Washington, I came to New York and I was talking to the other ministers. I said, you know, I said, if we look at scripture, I mean, everybody is a man, everybody is falling. And then word began to be put around that Malcolm was a hypocrite mm. and that instead of trying to, I guess you could say justify it, I was accusing him of something that happened. And that's really the reason why I was put out of that organization, not because of what I said about President Kennedy, though I did say that, a matter of chickens coming home to roost. <laughs> but that was something else. And then I was, my, not just my faith in myself, my faith in all existence was, at, at, was at, at, at such a low air by, Went to Boston, I visited my half-sister Ella, and I said, Ella, I said, I think i got to make the pilgrimage, and she gave me the money. And when I was there, I had a new faith, and I wrote letters back. I said, at Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia, I I remember the ancient words of Allah. Uh, To claim the pilgrimage among men, they will come on foot, and upon lean camel, they will come from every deep ravine. And from Mecca, the holy city of Islam, I wrote to friends in America. Never have I witnessed such sincere hospitality and true brotherhood as has been shown me here in this ancient holy city, the home of Abraham, Mohammed, and all of the other prophets from the holy scripture. You may be shocked at these words coming from me, but... What I have seen has forced me to rearrange many of my previous convictions to toss aside many of my conclusions previously held for during the past seven days I've eaten from the same plate, slept on the same rug, prayed to the same God as fellow Muslims whose eyes were the bluest of blue, whose hair was the blondest of blonde, and whose skin was the whitest of white, we were truly the same because their belief in one God has erased the whites from their mind, the whites from their action, and the whites from their attitude. And so at that point, I made that final pilgrimage where I started to reach that beloved community that this minister talks about, that is the words of what we would say from the prophet Jesus this idea of love, but not eros of a man for a woman or even familiar love, but the love that one human being has for another human being. So I've had quite a crooked journey, but at this point I am a Muslim, I am a Sunni, and ultimately I believe that that is the only hope for mankind, that is the only hope for America. As I said, I don't think, Americans or Negroes are going to all of a sudden become uh, Muslims, but I would hope that they would know something about the religion. They would know something about a religion that does not segregate people by color because if they could understand that, that there is a chance that we could do it in this country. So one can stay Christian, one can stay Buddhist, one can stay Jewish, and I got friends who don't believe in anything. Mm -hmm. But in terms of coming together as human beings, I think ultimately that will be our redemptive quality in this world. Yes, thank you, Martin.
6: And that's what we mean by reconciliation. That Brother Malcolm's life has had knocks on both sides, but he has finally reconciled himself to the forces of love that agape love, where we begin to recognize that we're all in this together and that we're all much stronger and much bigger as one than we are as separate. My own journey, you probably know, I'll tell you very short so, be, so we can get some more questions. It's, uh, I, I grew up, of course, in a, a family of, of, of ministers. My father was a preacher, and he ran uh, pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And my mother's worked in the church. My mother was a, a, a musician, and she played the organ, and, and so on. And so I grew up uh, in that environment. And then when I was 15, my father sent me to Morehouse and there I ran into uh, a lot of other ministers, one of whom was Dr. Benjamin Mays. And one of the things I noticed that was different from my father's preaching, was that Dr. Benjamin Mays used a lot of big words. And I looked at it one day and said, you know, I'm gonna get me some big words one day. (laughs) And my father introduced me to the dictionary. Uh, but I found that the, the, the preachings of love was the only way to go. I still did not decide I wanted to be a minister, I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. And uh, I went off to, to uh, college at Morehouse and the next thing I knew, my father had me back at home ordaining me as a minister, sending me off to the seminary and made me a minister. Uh, I appreciated that and and, and that's how uh, we got started in this whole thing. I, I, I do want to tell you two other short things and one of them I said earlier that I was talking about being on the other side of the line. I want to make it clear that we never saw the line of segregation between being black folks and white folks, that white folks were not the enemy. So when I said something about being behind enemy lines, I didn't want you to get the impression that I was talking about white folks as the enemy. The enemy was ignorance. The enemy was oppression. The enemy was confusion. And we had people who knew better but didn't know how to get out of that. And so I wanted to make that point before we got out of here.
5: Let me ask you both Of I did see white folks at the enemy. But that changed for me when I left this country and I saw men who in America would be considered white. Mm -hmm. But when I saw them in other places, they did not look at me as black. Mm -hmm. They looked at me as a human being. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of how they looked at me, I gradually began to change how they looked at him. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, but that happened when I left this country and eventually I came to understand that white folk wasn't the enemy.
0: So let me ask this question before we go back to the audience here, because you've raised the issue now and I think it's an important issue to explore in more depth. You both have um, come to a place here in America in 1965. Uh, Great transformations in your own lives over these years. I mean, the civil rights movement you're part of is an interracial movement. Mm-hmm. The speech you gave on the mall in 1963 dreamed of a time when young black and white children would walk together. Mm-hmm. We couldn't forget that speech. I couldn't forget that speech. You came back from Mecca and from Africa with a very different vision of race than you had before you left. So, what does that say about where we are now? And your vision of what in your heart you think is going to happen in the society of ours that is so racially mixed, been so divided, segregated, separated for 400 years, are we about to embark on something different? Where do you see us now? Where do you see us going in the visions you now have about race in this world we live in?
6: Well, here's the remembrance part. You gotta, it seems to me, make sure you go back and read what actually happened in times past to appreciate deeply the value of what was achieved. Most people are probably not aware that before President Eisenhower sent those National Guard down to Little Rock in 1957, that he had refused on several requests that we had made to him. And the Congress was filled to the brim with Dixiecrats, segregationists, rabid segregationists, determined not to move. And since the beginning of the country, if you go back and read, what was happening at the very beginning of the country. It was the same Southern segregationists who were slaveholders at the time, controlling the Congress to keep the slave codes in place, to keep the world divided. We changed slavery. We changed Jim Crow. And so the experience of seeing the changes occur, one of the things I I agree with Brother Malcolm on very very, uh, uh, much is that civil rights, the movement that we're in, is not going to change people's hearts overnight. It is not an instant fix. It's going to take some time for people to see. And that's black people as well as white people. Because we have, we've been steeped in this experience that none of us really understand. We just know that it is painful and it's not just. But look back at history and remember the truth about what went on, how that was changed. And then you understand that what we have to look forward to is what happened to Brother Malcolm. This whole notion of reconciliation. We go back to that preamble to our Constitution. We go back to that Declaration of Independence that says we hold these
5: truths.
0: Can we live together, Malcolm X,
5: as one? Uh, only, Only if we reach the stage where we can have creative, honest, open dialogue with each other. The white man and the black man have got to sit down, look at each other as men, that white man has to have the feeling and the assurance that he can say whatever he feels like he must say to that black man without hurting his feeling, that black man must have the assurance he can say whatever he feels like saying to that white man without hurting his feelings, and only when we get honest, open, true honest dialogue will we have. But if we don't reach the stage where we don't have honest, honest dialogue, I don't see it
0: the mark steiner show is brought to you by MeQ, baltimore's credit union offering a full range of financial services meq baltimore's credit union is helping its members and its community prosper when you invest in yourself meq invests in you For more information www.mecu.com Welcome back, folks. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show right here on Your Source for Cool Jazz and More, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And today we're airing a special edition from our archives to honor the 92nd birthday of Malcolm X. We're bringing you an archived edition from a Maryland Humanities tour, where I played an interviewer interviewing Malcolm X, played by Charles Everett Pace, and Dr. Martin Luther King King, Jr., played by Bill Gromette enjoy the rest of this
2: conversation. Yes. I overcame a lot of barriers to buy a home in what was before a white community. And now I find myself with my children going to, to what were formerly white schools and being among the 3 to 5% of Negro children in those schools. I thought I was doing that to help them get a good education. But I'm finding that maybe integration is not all I thought it was going to be because they are coming home different from me that went to all segregated schools with a lack of appreciation of what they bring to the table. People doubting why they are here. Are they smart enough? And finding themselves not having equality in school or equal opportunity, but really, major discrimination and a lack of appreciation by these white teachers of what they are able to accomplish and what they know. So is integration the answer for our children? And the history books have nothing in it about our contributions where I learned it in black schools, my children are not getting it unless I give it to them. So is this what we really need to progress?
5: That sounds like... Mm. This question was built for you at the moment. Well, of course, now you know what my answer to that is, sister. (laughs) But, But realistically, I say what we all want to do is that you send your child to the best school that you can send your child to. The best school that you can send your child to. But as I said, that the best doesn't necessarily mean a white school. The question is, who controls that school? And who's looking out for the interests of those children in that school? Who looks upon those children as fellow human beings, as creatures of God in that school? And so therefore, if you have a school where the teachers put up an environment, an atmosphere, that they love those children as fellow human beings, then they can get a good education in that school. When I was in Michigan, when I was living with Miss, Miss Swirling, I was elected the president of my eighth grade class. That was a function of that school. It was primarily a white school. But we know the reality of the situation is that if you are in a school that's segregated, that is controlled by somebody else, they will always give you the worst or the lowest to offer. So that question I ask, who controls that school?
6: Well, I think we ought to ask ourselves the question, what does integration mean for us? You may not be describing integration. You may be describing the journey on the road to integration. There is none of us who can describe for you what integration ultimately is going to look like. You have to do that for yourselves in community. But it's not really necessarily about what you actually described. Think about it as all of us are searching for the best thing. The white parents and the black parents are searching for the best thing for our children. Some of us wanna send our children to Christian schools and some send them to Muslim schools and some send them to outdoor schools, but we all are searching for the best for our children. We have never figured out in any place in the world where different groups of people who have different core beliefs can come together and do the same thing and have it work perfectly. They are always struggling to try to find the right mix, the right blend. So don't throw the baby out with his bath water. Ask yourself the question, when will we actually have integration? And then you go out and make that vision come true. Martin Luther King Jr. couldn't tell you what integration means, but he can tell you that when you reconcile yourself to a vision of cooperation and empowerment of everybody together, you will find the right formula for integration and your children will always be the better for it.
5: And in the meantime, between now and then, (laughs) what we have to do is educate our own children, regardless of what schools they go to. Because everyone knows only a certain part of education happens in the schools it happens in the home, it happens in the community, it happens in the church, it happens in the mosque, it happens in the community centers. So we look at the school and we say what's missing in terms of this image that you have. You look realistically with the image you have, you look at the school and you say what's missing and what's missing, you have to, we have to fill in that gap.
9: That's mine is a comment not a question um one of the things that you touched on was when you talked about mike wallace but one of my heroes in the white community who did a lot to show america what needed to be shown with the dogs and all of that was howard k smith he's a man who said should i should i televise this He made the right decision at the right time. And all of us who saw the dogs and all of that really should give him credit. Here's a son whose name I can't remember and I don't know what happened to him, but I did a little reading about Howard K. Smith. And I just want everyone to know, white folks and black folks and all color folks, that that man deserves a lot of credit because he could have said, I'm not televising that but he didn't, he was brave and he made a good decision at a good time.
10: Thank you for those comments. Sir? Uh, this message, is, this is for Brother Malcolm. Uh, in the book written called uh, Castro and the Blacks, uh, when Fidel Castro came to the US, uh, he came to a place that we call Harlem and he called you up, Brother Malcolm, and you were the only person in this country that welcomed uh, Brother Fidel when he came into this country. What is, your, what, what is your connection to Fidel and, and, and what do you like about Fidel when it comes to what he talks about as revolution?
5: Well, that was this hotel that I, I used to uh, frequent when I was on the street, Hotel Teresa. And when Fidel was told that he could not leave New York City, he had to stay within the confines of that 22 square miles there of Manhattan, they expected him, of course, maybe to be at the Waldorf you know, or the Hilton, but he said, no, I'm gonna go to the Teresa Hotel, which is up in Harlem. But one has to understand, Fidel was just going home, he was just going for (laughs) what he was used to. I mean, Cuba, most Cubans are black folk, so he was just going to where he was used to being around. Mm -hmm. Now, what do I feel about Mr. Castro? Well, he seems to be an honest man, he seems to be a man who wants what his people did not get under the former regime. When Mr. Batista opened up the country to be the playground for casinos and prostitutions and all types of illicit activity and the, the, the health system, if you were black, and poor, and that was the majority of Cubans. You were on the lower end. Your education was on the lower end. He says he wants to raise the health care, he wants to raise the educational rate of the country. I have no reason. To doubt that I know that if there's a man who was born wealthy, who was born rich, but yet and still he would give up that wealth and go and take twelve men into the Sierra Maestres and go in to have enough support that the majority of the people in that country supported him. Well, that seems to me what the essence of democracy is about. Yeah. So I. I don't have any particular insight other than that, but to say that the Cuban people have spoken, and so long as he's satisfying the Cuban people, I assume that they would keep him, and when he no longer satisfies the Cuban people, they would do for him what they did for
4: Batista.
0: (laughs) Now that's more dangerous talk than taking on Elijah Muhammad. Sir?
4: Uh, Yes. Dr King, I understand well, I understand that both of your goals are the same in that you want to have equal rights for all human beings, correct? Right. So That's correct. Um, Dr King, I understand your goal or the means to which you are trying to reach that goal is through integration. Um Mr. X I <laughs> I'm, I'm a little confused on what the practical goal of your movement is or was.
5: Well, the practical goal in my movement as a nationalist, I think that black people should control the economics of the black community educationally, I think black people should control the educational system of the black community. In other words, I believe that each group of people will look after their own self-interest. I think the government is here to protect us from foreign influences and to take its foot off of us and allow each group, each person, each individual to develop as they see fit. Let's say if you are in a community like the average black community when you got a dollar, and if you go and you got to spend that dollar for somebody else to get the amenities of life, it doesn't take very much sense to figure out that the dollar that's coming out of a community going into the community, that that community that is leaving is going to get poor and poor, and the place where that dollar is going is going to get richer and richer. So I'm just simply saying I think black people should control the well-being and welfare of our own community, and we can still live as one United States.
6: Well, um, I, and I think that's uh, we we totally agree. I mean, there's never been a time when uh, the civil rights movement has said that black people should give over the control of their community or their schools or anything else to anybody else. We totally agree that we've got to control our own uh, uh, advance. Uh, But integration, I want you to understand the whole idea about integration is working as a group of equals. That's all we mean. What that means differs in Detroit from what it does in Selma but working as a group of equals and making decisions as a group of equals. The decisions you make cannot be defined by anybody before you get into it. But it's about reconciliation. How do you reconcile yourselves to this whole notion of love, of Christianity, of humanity? How do you reconcile what you do today to that magnificent document, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence? And once you think about that, that's the ultimate goal, is reconciling ourselves to the forces of love. All
0: right, th-
10: th- we're gonna take two more questions here and we're gonna take a little switch, but sir and then the young man over there. If you don't mind, I'd like to take the onus of this issue off the backs of black people and put it where I think it truly belongs. First of all, I think there has to be, before there can be reconciliation, there has to be an acknowledgement that the parent from which all this discrimination and uh, hatred and jim crowism and slavery comes is white supremacy that's the parent of all of this It's an ideology that says by nature of his birth his birth or their birth that white people are superior to all colored peoples in the world and this is the basis for their exploitation uh and colonization of all every colored land in the world mm-hmm. that's a fact that's not speculation this has actually happened ask any chinese or japanese or indonesian or indian who subjugated their people, took their land, and exported their resources. So what I'd like to know from you gentlemen, and that's what brings us all together in terms of the global situation, but what I'd like to know from you gentlemen is, and I have read your Stride Toward Freedom and Why We Can't Wait when I was in college, and Malcolm, I've listened to your speeches, the ballot of the bullet, Message to the Grassroots. And nowhere do I hear either of you say anything about this ideology called white supremacy. So what do you think white people should do to expunge the world of this ideology?
6: Oh, I talked about white supremacy all the time. Oh, I use exactly those words of white supremacy. Uh, That's what I mean about remembrance. Make sure we are remembering the right thing. Uh, I talked about the scourge of white supremacy and this whole notion uh, that has made a certain group of people feel superior and another group feel inferior. What I was working to do is is to break down the institutions that perpetuated that notion. There is no way in the world that you can walk up to somebody and say, stop believing that you're superior and have it happen. What you can do is begin to dismantle those institutions that day in and day out continue to perpetuate this idiotic and evil notion. Everybody on both sides of the divide know that it's wrong, but there's no way in the world that you can get people who already feel superior to say, you know, I think I'll get up this morning and see if I can bring myself down a buttonhole lower. (laughs) I see. It's got to be practical. You've got to do practical things. It's going to be generations before we get rid of the ideology, but we can get rid of the institutions that continue to perpetuate it and continue to say to people who believe that they are inferior, stop comparing yourself to other people and compare yourself to a standard of success and growth that's going to make a difference in your life.
5: Well, that's what I meant when I said honest, open dialogue, (laughs) (laughs) and I don't propose to have a solution for white people, for white supremacy, I know it's a problem. I see signs, as I said 15 or 20 minutes ago, on college campus with younger white students, but ultimately that's a problem that's going to have to be worked out among white people. The first thing, white people have to acknowledge they're white supremacy. You know, when we had an organization and we would go into the prison and we would get people off drugs, the first thing the addict has to acknowledge is I am a drug addict and I won't help. And then we had a program to work with you and we had a person who was assigned with you. It was an honest, open admission that I need help On a problem. Now, I think white supremacy or any type of supremacy is a mental condition of the head and the heart. And I'm speaking about myself when I say that, and I'm not speaking about anyone else. I'm talking about what I felt and what I had to go through. I had a religious conversion, and it was Islam that did it for me. And as I said, I don't expect all white people, all Negroes to have to convert to Islam, but I had to work it out. And so from a practical standpoint, white people first has to acknowledge it exists and they have to decide that they want to work it out and then there are enough of us around who would be willing willing to help them work it out. But as to a solution or to impose a solution on them, I cannot do that. That would, again, go against everything I believe in and everything I fought against. Let, 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 let me, let me
6: just, just make this little statement. It is not their problem. White supremacy is not their problem. Think about that for a minute.
3: Hi, I have a question. Actually, I'm speaking as a proxy for my son, who's a little shy about speaking in front of the microphone. But he's also very bossy, so I hope I phrase it right. <laughs> it, he has a question for Dr. King. He's been studying civil rights in school. And he wants to know how you can encourage people to march um, unarmed in front of tanks and guns and dogs. and um, not allow them to fight bullets with bullets um, because that doesn't make sense to him.
6: That is a good question. What is your name? Zach. Jack? Well, Jack. Zach. Zach? Zach. Zach, it didn't make sense to me either. and, and, and you have to do it very carefully that, that this whole, the question you have to ask yourself is the tactic that I'm using. Is it to win something or is it to get even? If I want to get even, it is easy to just go out and get some guns and slap somebody who slapped you. And you'll continue to get even because they'll come back and get even with you, you get even with them, and it never stops. And you'll live in a world of absolute and total chaos. But our notion was to live in a world of community where people actually get along and can go to school and can learn and can fend for themselves and fend for their family. And so the question then has to be, what kind of community is that? And I've never seen a community where everybody is fighting and shooting at each other, and they actually accomplish something of value. And so our approach, our approach is that if I don't have any guns at all, I already know that I'm gonna get shot at, whether I have guns or not. But here's what I also know. I know what the other side teaches their children like you. They teach them that shooting somebody who is unarmed is wrong. They teach them that, that injustice, inequality, lack of opportunity is wrong. And they tell it to you between you and your sisters and brothers. And when you come and confront them with that and stay in their face, they have, a make, have to make a choice. Do I stop teaching my children this, or do I actually live it? And when they have to make a choice, history will show you that inevitably they choose the moral course. And that's why we can do it, because it works, and the the, the alternative is chaos. I hope I answered your question.
3: Remembering it's January 1965. I'm a baby boomer. I was amongst the very first of the classes that went to integrated schools in Baltimore City I went to What I think were the best schools that were made available to us at that time. I Walked the halls of Congress Already at 1965 been politically active in my community. I've marched in civil rights movements and demonstrations. I've integrated the Northwood Theater. In nine months, I'm gonna be drafted into the army and I'm headed off for Vietnam. I'm gonna meet those individuals from the middle of America, some of whom never saw a Negro, because that's what we were called in 1965. I wanna hear from Dr. King and Malcolm X, how do you vision this, this country 40 years later? Because tonight I stand here heartbroken because I've spent those 40 years trying to achieve a society that I hear the both of you uh, saying that we need to do in order, we need to get together in order for us to live in harmony and peace in this country. How do you see this nation 40 years from January 1965?
5: Well, welcome. <laughs> Someplace I once wrote of all the disciplines that history is the one that's most practical to reward all research. So I, I propose to know something about history, but I'm not a futurist. Hmm. And I would say that the society that we will have in 40 years from now will be the exact society, maybe not that we deserve, but it will be the society that we create. And I think right now we decide what society do we want to create? What society are we creating every day, every minute, every hour, every second? And whatever society that we are doing on a day by day, week by week, month by month basis, 40 years from now, we'll have the culmination of that society. That's what I foresee.
6: I'm not a futurist, but I had a dream once. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that (laughs) <laughs> Brother Malcolm is exactly right. There's no way in the world that we can give you the society that you want. We would love to, but I want you to know that Jesus couldn't do it. And He wanted to, He gave His life for it to happen. But He gave us something that we Seem to too often forget. He gave us something that we're always praying for. He gave us a magnificent miracle. The miracle of love. The miracle of humanity. And the miracle to think. When we remember things in the wrong way. We are likely to make the wrong choices about our own future. When we continue to perpetuate the divide that was created by slaveholders to keep us all in chains by labeling them isms, then we will continue to get the result from that divide. Brother Malcolm is right. Every day that we get up, we get a decision to make. And that decision is not about, am I going to be a black person or a white person? The decision is, am I going to be a godly person? We start thinking like that. Our future has no limits. If we continue to remember things in the wrong way, I don't think we have much of a future.
0: We have uh, come towards the end of our evening, and, and uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, I think in many ways the embodiment of America and who we are, they have much to say to us now in 19, in 2007, as they did in 1965, maybe even more, as we reflect on it. And I wish we had time to reflect with our two scholars here a bit, but I think we're almost out of time. I want to do introduce the, 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 the men to my right and my left, uh, Bill Grimet, who played Martin Luther King, a master storyteller and actor, who were former colleagues together at the Baltimore School for the Arts for many years. Uh, he's a Chautauqua scholar who has played, as you see, Martin Luther King, Benjamin Banneker, Frederick Douglass, and many others. The man to my left I have just the honor to meet now for the first time in person, though we met on the phone as we planned this thing out. His name is Charles Everett Pace. He is a, a noted Chautauqua scholar who has played many roles and uh, lives in Texarkana, Texas. And if you'd like to know more, yes, Texarkana. <laughs> and if you would like to know more about the Charles Everett Pace, you can go to CharlesEverettPace.com and learn a great deal more about this man and his work. So I want to thank you all for uh, doing this for this evening. We also
4: give a round of applause to Mark for his participation this evening.
0: The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amon Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. And our intern is Morgan State senior Michael Dixon. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of the Clip If you send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast is Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcast app. We're your source for cool jazz and more, W.E. AA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community.
3: I'm Mark Steiner, aka.